When I was a kid, I wanted to be a painter, and now I'm a poet. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Rowan Ricardo Phillips. Rowan is the author of three books of poems, Heaven, The Ground, and Living Weapon, and two essay collections, the Circuit, and When Blackness Rhymes with Blackness. His awards include the Penn Osterweil Award for Poetry, the Nicolas Guillen Outstanding Book Award, the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing, and the Annisfeld Wolf Book Award, among others. He teaches at Princeton University and Williams College and lives in New York City, Williamstown, and Barcelona. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Rowan. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. How are you? Of course. I'm doing well. Thank you. How have you been? Well, I mean, all things considered, I can't complain. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. And we always like to start with something that's recently sparked our curiosity. For me, it's been the NBA playoffs. We're recording this as it's in its second round. And I've been a lifelong fan of basketball and the NBA. But what's particularly interested me about the playoffs this year is, one, how the NBA has seemed to succeed better than any other league when it comes to picking back up and the safety of its players. So that's been reassuring. And also how I think even though there have been what I feel is, you know, areas of improvement and areas for growth, I think overall compared to other leagues in the, in the United States, at least they've done an admirable job of trying to figure out how they can utilize their platform to sustain a conversation around social justice. And I think a lot of credit goes to the players for that as well. And and the commissioner for being receptive in a way that it seems like other leagues haven't haven't quite uh, followed suit, or at least not yet. So as a basketball fan and somebody who's anxious to see change in this country, I'm, I'm glad that that dialogue has, has been at the forefront. And I know there's a lot more that could be done, but even just seeing you know, the Milwaukee Bucks decide to step off the court the other day, and that, that started a, a dialogue around, you know, getting NBA arenas to become voting voting centers this fall. I think that that was a step that I was uh, happy to see, even though I know there's much more that can and should be done. You know, it's funny thinking about how the NBA has gone full circle because even before the season started, there was the whole thing with China and Hong Kong. Right, with Daryl Morey, the Rockets GM, yeah. Well, and then and then LeBron's unfortunate response to it um, and how, um, you know, there's something about getting a second chance at um, coming together as a community and, and uh, saying the right things. And in this case, looking to do the right things, um, but also um, how things change when they hit close to home. So your, you know, your curiosity uh, ties in with mine. Um, you know, mine is empathy. Um, but I guess before I even get into what I find incredibly curious about that these days, as, a, as opposed to others, um, I think it ties into you talking about basketball because I find myself thinking about um, where the WNBA fits in to all of this. Because, you know, for anything that we want to law at the NBA for at this point, the WNBA has been exponentially um, more strident and, and righteous and ethical and um, unequivocal 
um, and have far more skin in the game in the sense that they don't have the, they're not remunerated in a way to, um, you know, uh, take a game off if, if you yeah. right? Right. Um, and the WNBA has a type of, um, before I call it empathy, I'll just say connection with their, with their fans and with their crowds that um, the, the NBA itself does not. I mean, if you've been from the mezzanine down at a game, you know, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's who can, who can foot the bill or what corporation could foot, foot the bill for them. Right. And with the WNBA, the absence of the crowd really means something I think different um, than it does in the NBA. Um, and I, you know, this is by no means a correction to your curiosity, but I find myself curious about the way in which we find these schisms um, when it's, it's, it's clear that the WNBA, I mean, the, 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 even the messaging, um, and we can only go so far with messaging, but the, from messaging to implication, when you think about people like Maya Moore, who has mm -hmm. left her career um, to help others, um, and they're under the same aegis of ownership, you know, the WNBA being owned by the NBA, um, it, it, it's curious to me how, um, you know, one, one institution, um, can be kind of erased in that sense. I'm, I'm incredibly heartened by what the Bucks have done. And I know that the Bucks have players, um, uh, numerous players as do many NBA teams who have been, um, through a lot regarding, um, police violence, um, and racial discrimination. Um, you know, but sitting out a game and then getting back to it is not, you know, it's a, it's a message, but in the, in the end, um, I look at what the WNBA has been doing and, uh, the, um, I don't know, the flame that's under their feet and the way in which they, as the French would say, just don't give a fuck, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, you have James Harden wearing a mask with a thin blue line flag on it and not knowing it was a fashion yeah. statement, right? Yeah. And like you said, you know, no, nothing is better, no organization is better. You can always find kind of like lapses or anything like that. Um, but my curiosity, I guess, to, to, to Veer is, is this notion of, of empathy. And I, I'm, I'm increasingly um, perplexed at our, our inability writ large to concern ourselves with one another, which is what you're seeing now with the environment. You're in California, you know what's been going on with these fires and to find out that uh, one, of the, one of the catalysts for it was a gender reveal. Experience. Yeah, I read that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, to think to do that at all, much less, uh, you know, during an, a terrible arid spell during, during a pandemic, um, or whether it's regarding people's decisions uh, not to wear masks or, um, you know, just kind of our, our tendencies to think politically uh, and in terms of policy, first and foremost, about kind of like what I feel and, and what responds to my feelings. Um, it perplexes me. I mean, it disappoints me, but it just genuinely perplexes me. Um, and, you know, California seems to be in some way, unfortunately, a um, terrible example of that in the sense that, you know, um, you know, you can have a state that's largely on fire. Um, you can have people who are incredibly at risk by a terrible virus 
and yet you can have communities just really not caring. Um, and that's even the case I'm in Williamstown right now, which is an incredibly uh, progressive small town, um, you know, minutes away from Vermont, and you'll still find, um, you know, Trump acolytes here or there, some are louder than others. Um, sure. But I, I just, I wish that there was more of a, a demonstration of, of uh, care and a, a sense that it's okay, you're not weak or, or less masculine or less American or, or less wealthy if you demonstrate care for other people. Um, and it's really amazed me um, constantly daily that we've gotten here. And I find it been really strange that we're kind of hardwired this way. We're, we're, we're hardwired in a way to kind of like do harm to our communities, which doesn't make really sense to me. I, I don't know about, about you, but I used to think that when I was younger, I thought that, you know, we, we all had at least an idea um, of how to go forward together, right? And you could be on one side of a political spectrum or one side of a social uh, spectrum or the other, but the idea was that we had ideas of how to go forward all of us, but that's clearly not the case. Um, and, uh, you know, it's dystopian and it, it perplexes me, it depresses me. Um, and I wish that my curiosity was something that was more kind of generative to communication, but, you know, it's even this format that we're forced to do now where we're kind of like um, locked into our homes and talking through um, Zoom you know, we, we're, we seem satisfied, not you and I, but you know, we're increasingly satisfied by being um, bubbled in mm -hmm. and making the best of it, you know, through our apps, yeah. uh, through our various forms of media. Um, and it's scary. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I feel for like my younger brother who was about to start at his dream school, uh, got into college, was going to start his dream school and is now doing classes online over zoom and even at his college there were there was a mini outbreak of people he's studying from home but there were students who got together and it spread among the fraternity row at his university and and i think about all these things you're saying about how hard is it to just be empathetic yeah. um and it seems like it, it it's surprisingly difficult <laughs> surprisingly difficult for many people um so i'm, I'm just i'm making a concerted effort to make sure at least my loved ones and my family and friends are are taking care of themselves and looking out for other people because that's that's all I think I can do for now. <laughs> um, well, but, in this podcast, we were talking about yeah. art with artists, right? Because yeah. you know, my my secondary curiosity would be just kind of like where making and 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 making things and talking about art and stuff fits in in this world that we're living in. Uh, yeah, that that's been to the extent there have been silver linings. This has been one of them. The fact that I was doing this in person. Now I've taken the step of doing Zooms. And so to reach out to an author I admire like yourself, a poet I admire um, who doesn't live in Los Angeles and have the opportunity to talk with you, that's, that's been a, a silver lining to the extent there have been any. And being able to talk to, for example, sommelier in Paris, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to do that. I would have never done that uh, otherwise. So there have been components of this time that I think I do want to hang on to in some way, but definitely many I'm happy to transition from when the opportunity comes about. But to get more directly to your art, because that's that's I'm super excited to get into it. I'm I'm super curious to hear about your process writing the circuit in a way that you to me struck such a great balance of anchoring, you know, the tournaments and the circuit of tennis, a year of tennis 
with what was going on in the world and even in your own personal life. And in, in some ways, it really it, um, reminded me of something endearing that my dad does. Whenever a song comes on from the 70s, he has associations in his head. So he'll first be like, oh, this was, uh, you know, 78. I was at UCLA Fowler Library. I was studying for my midterm. And this was a song I was listening to or whatever the case may be. Right. So really? I think, yeah. So, so as I was reading your book, you know, you, you were injured for a big stretch of the time that you were documenting that tennis season. And so it, it, it gave such a cool human component. And you actually made me care about your life, too, um, which I think is awesome as well. Can you talk about that balance of, you know, educating a reader like myself about the history of the game and these tournaments and the current players, but also weaving in your own personal narrative and where the world was at that time? Sure. You know, I, um, I don't know. I think that's kind of the, the task of the writer, not to think of the audience per se. I wasn't thinking about an audience when I was writing it, but I was certainly thinking about um, what tennis means to me and why at that point in my life I was um, uh, very injured, you know, um, post-surgery and, and rehabbing and um, what brought me to just obsessively watch. I, you know, I've always been an, an avid watcher, but um, kind of to settle in that way and, and to tell that story. Um, and it involves, I guess, not thinking too much about um, where tennis ends and I begin, um, but rather taking in the, the entire experience as such. I think that's what happens when we watch tennis anyway. This is why so people become such big fans of a particular player, whether it's Serena or Rafa Nadal or Venus or Roger Federer, that there's a way in which um, the game itself, um, I don't know, is attractive and it, and, it, and it opens up a way in which we can see ourselves in it, which is funny because when you think about tennis, it can be such a gated community type of sport. Um, but I don't think that's anything inherent in the, in the game that itself, itself. Um, and the sport is a, is a type of conversation. I mean, I hit the ball across the net to you and I hit it with slice or with top spin or a certain angle. And that's giving you certain information that you are then going to return in kind. Right. And then if we did that in Australia, that would be one type of experience that we had. But then if we meet again in Paris, or in um, Buenos Aires, or in um, Indian Wells, right? It's, it's, it's a conversation with a different ki uh, context. Uh, and that, that really kind of fascinated me, just kind of living with that in a blow-by-blow -blow sense. And, um, you know, a lot of our great stories, um, you know, the Iliad among them and the Odyssey, are stories where you zoom in and you pull back, you zoom in and you pull back. There's something that's cinematic about it, um, but there's also something that's really humane in telling a story that way. Um, but if, if anything, you know, I was someone who was, um, I was drawn to tennis at a moment where I thought, you know what? I've never really thought about the way in which tennis is one of the very few sports that starts on the first day of the year and takes us through to the end of November. Most seasons, you mentioned basketball, Ben, you know, basketball begins in October and ends in June. Baseball begins in March and ends in October. Um, but tennis is a sport that encapsulates a calendar year. 
um, and it chases the sun. You know, it starts in the summer of Australia. Uh, and when winter comes to Australia, it's on the other side of the world um, and ends in London. And so I found myself thinking about what happens when you devote your concentration to um, chasing the sun with the tour um, and having the seasons, feeling the seasons through um, these matches, almost like um, flipping through the pages of a book. And then naturally, I think from that, yourself comes into um, the story. Because obviously, you know, I've, I've gotten once in a while, not very often, but a question of kind of like, oh, well, you know, you were watching so many games on TV. Why did you go to more games? And I simply say, well, this is a story about spectatorship. This is not a story about being a beat writer. I mean, it's not 1974. And there I was in the locker room and I asked him after the game and he said to me, you know, we've been mentioning technology, but you know, that's why players now have Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter so that they can circumvent that type of medium. And a lot of times the access that people have, oh, I talked to Roger Federer for five minutes. Here's my story. You know, it's a real um, simulacrum of access. And I was much more interested, particularly if you started us in with the Australian Open, the Australian Open um, for people in America is a love story, right? Did you get up at three? Did you stay up until three to watch that match? Well, now I'm going to use East Coast hours, but the three o'clock match, the four o'clock match, you know, the 5.30 a.m. match. Um, and it becomes something where if you're talking to someone about the Australian Open, either they were up at some ridiculous hour trying to catch a match or they cared enough to record it and then catch it. So then you'll have somebody say, no, 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 no. I recorded, I don't know. I don't want to know what happened. And, you know, the circuit's about the 2017 season, uh, you know, a season that in retrospect was really dipped in amber. We won't see one like that again. Um, but January, 2017 was the Trump inauguration. Um, the Women's uh, March was going on during the um, Australian Open and Federer and Nadal's final, that first glorious final um, which we thought we'd never see the likes of again, um, took place the day in which the Muslim ban was instituted and people were going to the airports and protesting. Um, and so for me, even thinking to start this story, and I'm, I'm in January, it's really hard not to have the world seeping in um, to these stories. You had the French elections that were gonna happen just before the French Open um, and with Wimbledon, you had, you know, really uh, Great Britain dealing with the consequences of, you know, the, 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 the Brexit vote wasn't anymore. Oh, I'm going to take a piss and vote. Leave. It was a reality that, you know, you were living, they were living through the consequences of. And, you know, starting to chart that, um, it seemed one, inevitable that I'm also talking about the world. But two, Ben, I was really uh, motivated by this question. Um, that comes back to this curiosity and empathy that we're talking about in these bubbles. Is tennis something that's an escape from the world? Does tennis shut out the world? Or is tennis something that breathes in the world? Is that membrane that surrounds a tennis tournament um, and any match, is it impermeable or is it permeable? And I wanted to um, fixate on that um, for a long period of time, a calendar year, and see what would come of it. Um, but yeah, also, you know, if you, if you live with people and, you know, I have a wonderful wife and two daughters and you're watching the Shanghai open and your kids have questions about why it's dark, 
while they're watching a match in the morning. Um, it also reminds you that yes, the world is round and that there are great stories to tell, not just from the match itself, but from the mise-en-scene, the, the, the atmosphere of even taking in a match. Um, so I didn't have to chart or plan as much as let it happen. I knew that the story was a quartet. There were four seasons that we're gonna go through and I knew I was gonna structure the, the book in that way. Um, but other than that, I was just gonna kind of let it play out you know, like Teju Cole said, when we um, got together for uh, an opening event for the book, he said, you know, Rowan, you're really, um, you're really coy because you call it the circuit of tennis odyssey, but it's much more like the Iliad. You know, <laughs> it, it starts with a great injury and you have lots of people kind of like fall off during the story. It's the story of a lot of injury and battles and revenge. Um, and as usual, he was right. So I'll try to speak less when you ask these questions. No, I love that. I, I love that. That's so beautiful because I think that's, you know, you talk about spectatorship and that's how when you're a spectator, all these things are in your mind as you're watching a game or even at a game, you know, you're thinking about what's going on in your own life. And that that's what I loved about it is it wasn't just, you know, that beat writer getting the quote from Federer to push out a story. It was like this, it felt like a life account in a really compelling way and you know, I remember when I was in high school, um, before our AP Euro exams, our teacher had us do a Jeopardy uh, format. And one of the things that was always funny in that was like, he would remind you, yeah, this thing that was happening in Italy and this time, there, there was this other thing happening in Spain around the same time. These weren't just like isolated incidents. Like there was stuff happening in Italy. There was stuff happening in Spain. There was stuff happening in France. And that's life, that's history. And it was beautiful to see that thrown in with sports too, as, as a sports fan and somebody who's recently had a passion for tennis. So that's something that really resonated with me in your writing and in the book. And I'm curious, as you were, as you were writing The Circuit, which is prose, how did your background as a poet come into it in terms of the writing? I mean, you've, I've heard you talk about how poetry has inherently a musical quality to it. Um, not all the prose I read has a musical quality to it. So I think that that can be something unique, perhaps in your approach. If you could talk a little bit about how poetry has influenced your writing of prose. Sure. Well, you know, poetry is how I understand the world. It's not um, an occupation that I chose. It's just something I, I can never really stop doing or avoid doing. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, um, you know, haven't become a vocation and the thing that steers my life. But, you know, anyone who has um, a long conversation with me or a regular conversation with me would find it's nearly impossible for poetry not to seep out. Um, you know, poetry always becomes kind of a reference to how I uh, see things and build off of perception. So, you know, even in the circuit, there's a moment where I think I say that, you know, when you watch Wimbledon, everything becomes green. It's like a green thought and a green shade. And that's from Marvell. And it's, it's certainly not me saying like, well, let me put a piece of Andrew Marvell's The Garden in here. Um, but rather that um, poetry informs um, my senses. And it's, it's an art of hyper-concentration uh, and it's formed my language. So it's, it's not something that is um, referential, right? I don't, I, I just don't separate I don't, I don't turn poetry off. I, you know, I guess we're all been, um, we're all born poets. I, 
I'm hesitant to say that because it sounds so cheesy and cliche, but um, seriously, when you think about it, we all as children are taught the world first through um, rhythm and rhyme, yeah. everything in that way. And that's the poet in us. We're, we're, we're not taught the world through prose. We're socialized um, to understand the world and to function as adults through prose. So there's a way in which prose is a growing up um, and poetry is kind of leaving that behind. Um, I just kind of never really, um, I never really had that happen. So what happens to me when I'm writing prose that, you know, I, I, I got, um, you know, advice from my, from my editor, uh, the great Jonathan Galassi that I, I, I could never improve on regarding my prose writing. And, he, you know, he said to me, you know, Rowan, just always write it flat because you're a poet and the poetry will come out. Um, and so the prose that you, you read is me writing pretty flatly and describing things. It's just that poetry is just a part of my language. And so it comes out. I think that if I try to write in purple prose, it would be so purple, it would be midnight black. <laughs> um, so, you know, what you get in, in the circuit in my essays is really not trying to tell it slant at all, just trying to tell it straight. Uh, and the poetry comes out. I think in a way that's also, um, I, I hope that more and more as uh, our generation, the generation after us uh, gets older and more mature, we can talk about this in a way that's just part of the world. Uh, we're a hip hop generation. That doesn't mean that we have to dress in hip hop and always talk uh, hip hop, but just we are. Um, and hip hop is highly referential also in that way, in that hip hop lyrics are always referring to other hip hop lyrics, but in, in an illusory way that is generative, right? It's not footnote laden. Uh, and I think that my, my base quality regarding poetry is also, uh, is also that way. But I think that we so fetishize um, expressive art forms that when we think about someone being a part of a hip hop generation, then you have to see it in some way. It has to be performative mm -hmm. in some way. But I just never really separated hip hop or poetry and high culture and low culture, sports writing from poetry writing. I've never really separated those things. Um, I just try to tell them as they are and let the poetry um, come in where it does. But also, you know, I don't know if you watch sports in other, other languages. I almost never um, listen to a soccer match in English um, and the rhythms and cadences mm -hmm. that you get. You know, as a kid, I would listen to grainy, um, you know, I would listen to um, Italian on grainy rye footage that I could kind of somehow pull up from the TV. Um, but the cadences also that you get from watching any type of match, I think also teach you of the, the, the beauty of, and power and glory of uh, kind of like a musical rendering of how we tell things. Yeah, I almost always prefer to watch a soccer game in Spanish if I can find, like if it's on ESPN Deportes. I would much rather watch it on that. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to ask you a question so elementary about poetry, but I feel like I, I need to ask it. As somebody who, like myself and many of my listeners, we probably have a very basic grade school understanding of poetry in the sense that if we saw a haiku in front of us, we could probably identified as a haiku or maybe even iambic pentameter if we saw it in front of us mm -hmm. but oftentimes when i flip through a poetry book i'm in a bookstore i'm flipping through a poetry book i often find myself thinking how how did the writer decide to cut off the line here how did you know how does this make sense how is this two lines the same poetry as as this other thing that's you know a bunch of pages 
And so for someone like myself, who has such an elementary understanding, how can you how can you help us uh, make sense of structure and and, um, you know, help us understand when poetry can can seem a little abstract to somebody who has such a basic understanding who does really want to appreciate it more? Sure. Well, I would say that um, first, when you talk about how um, poems kind of break on a line or on a page, I think it's always important to remember that a poem is a thing. And so the way that you see it is not necessarily telling you how to read it um, and just read a little bit of it out loud. And there's always a tension between what you hear and what you see. So often a strong poem is creating some type of tension between the sentence that you're reading and where that sentence breaks which is often where it's different from prose. Um, prose breaks um, syntactically and uh, grammatically, right? So commas, sentences, semicolons, paragraphs. Whereas a line of poetry uh, often seeks to break at a moment where it creates some type of um, sensation in you. Today I went to the store. Well, ideally, and here I'm giving you just a really uh, bland example, but there's drama in breaking at went because you don't know what comes next, right? right? Or it creates, if not drama, then a sense of possibility that after went, anything can happen. But what yeah. happens is to the store. However, you do not have to read it. Today, I went to the store. You can just say today, I went <laughs> to the store. And what actually, right. actually ends up happening, if you read, if you just read poetry um, by the by the sentence, if you will. Mm -hmm. Your body intuitively creates sensations from the way in which the lines are broken. So if you don't worry about the way in which the lines are broken, your body still is going to have some type of sensation that informs what you read because it's a physical thing. Your eye, almost like a typewriter, right? Your eye will be doing a certain type of work. And um, I'm a big trust the process person. It's kind of like if you read a poem and you trust that process, you'll see after a while that something's happening um, with your sensorium and the way that you read things. Uh, it's the same with uh, visual art, I would say. But also I think that poetry is largely a quest. There's so much poetry out there and I wouldn't expect any reader to flip open any particular book of poetry and say, ah, that was poetry, therefore I feel better. It's okay not to, it's okay to open a book and not like it. In the same way it's okay to go to a movie and go, I didn't like it. Right. Uh, but just kind of trusting the process and, and believing that, you know, poetry is something that encourages you to, even in a bookstore, mouth it a little bit. And yeah. those things that um, uh, your mind and body obsess a little bit over. And by obsess, I mean like, oh, I'd like to come back to that, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Those are the things that maybe, you know, um, take the book and kind of like live with it a little bit and see what. Uh, happens. But I think that the most important thing is to seek pleasure um, and understand that, that pleasure comes from uh, reading out loud, honestly. Yeah, that, that's something that, that occurred to me as I've been listening to poets read their own work. And until recently, I'd been experiencing it just by reading the sentence. And I hadn't really been thinking, let me read this out loud and hear the melody this person might have had in mind or the melody that strikes me as I'm reading it. So I think that that's something that's given me much more guidance as I'm as I'm flipping through books. Um, so that's been good. And I want to ask specifically about your process when it comes to writing poetry. I'm curious, 
you know, because t- I'm, I'm a TV writer. So we have we have a pretty regimented process. You know, idea comes, you outline it usually. And then you'll write a, you know, rough, very rough first draft and in screenplay form. And you'll go from there. But I'm curious, you know, when it comes to poetry, generally, what does your process look like from the inception of the idea to writing and editing? And then specifically, when you were writing Living Weapon, was there anything unique in your process that you discovered? Hmm. Um, okay, so my process regarding um, the writing of poetry is often that um, an idea catches me. I've been writing um, a lot in my head and um, writing down in my notebook eventually the things that I remember. Um, and thinking about poetry as something where it's kind of like, if you don't remember it, it's not memorable. I'm, I'm now wondering if that's, I was actually just talking to my wife about this this morning, it's funny. Um, I'm not sure that that is a permanent process. I think that was kind of a process that I was in the midst of for a number of reasons. But largely, um, you know, things that I can't shake are things that I start to write down. Um, and I honestly, Ben, I live by the syllable. So to me, there's a big difference between um, walk and stride or that and which. Um, mm-hmm. And that I think is, is really different from TV writing, right? Um, and so in living, by the, in living by the syllable, I find myself ultimately, when I, f- when I finish writing a draft or something, I have two key questions. Um, does it sound good and do I believe in it? And I think that what's difficult about poetry is finding that balance. I think it's really easy to write something that you don't believe in, but that sounds good. That music that I've talked about, right? And it's really easy to write something that you believe in, but doesn't sound good, like a rant or something like that. Um, but you know, for me, it's just when you start with a I, I what, right? Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because I've actually been thinking about my process quite a bit um, these past couple of days. Um, because when I get asked this, I wonder if I'm talking myself into uh, a fixed process. I feel a lot of change in myself as a writer um, very recently. And I've been questioning, um, you know, whether at my age and at this point in my career, if it's just a matter of we change, right? Um, regarding Living Weapon, I can tell you that, um, you know, the, f- the first poem, 1776, and the last poem, Portrait, are prose poems. They, they read like short stories. Um, and I, I found myself thinking about those line breaks that you talk about that seem to be natural to poetry, living life without them, living a life without kind of that edge and, and the drama of that ledge and, and what happens to how we make poems in that sense. Uh, Living Weapon also for me was, you know, my first two books of poetry um, are, are really concerned with poetic art and so was Living Weapon. Um, but if the first two poems were also thinking about um, how complex the world is and how complex kind of like systems that make up the world, political and social systems are, Living Weapon is a book that um, really dives head first into that and thinks about the music of poetry and how we make it and how we sustain it um, in a world that's really on, on, on fire. Um, that's just, you know, replete with injustices. Um, 
and how we find kind of peace and still kind of like a way to sing beautifully um, in the midst of all of that. Like I find myself, Ben, not wanting to be a um, stenographer for um, racial and social injustice. I don't want to kind of be rolled out when shit gets bad. Sure. Um, but at the same time, um, I don't want to just write about flowers either. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and life is finding um, some beautiful and necessary balance between the two. Um, but in general, I would just say that my, 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 my process is um, hearing the music in my head and editing it before I write it down in terms of kind of like, what, what is this that I hear? And is it something that I want to live with for a while um, or not? And, and that's helping me, I think, to understand myself, right? Because you're really having these conversations with yourself. Is this the true music or is this bullshit? <laughs> but I will say really quickly, there have been great poets who write in ways that would, would seem to you a lot like treatments, like William Butler Yeats. If you look at Yeats's work, you'll go, oh my gosh, this is so symbolic and rhyming and structural and everything. But he and his notebooks would write prose synopses of what he was going to write, right? Oh, wow. So yeah, you have this, you have this, you know, one of the first great 20th century poets who was born in the 19th century, and he's basically writing treatments before he writes out his like great bardic work. And what, one of the, one of the beautiful things within poetry that I, I always find fascinating is the titles. There are always these titles that grab me and make me need to read that poem. Within your process, how do you figure out what you want to title a poem? Maybe it's super simple, but I'm just personally curious. No, it's a lot of trial. Well, I don't know if it's a lot of trial and error, but it's trial and error. You know, I'm often a poet where if you find, um, if you go back and find the version of the poem in the journal before it was in the book, it might have a different poem. It might have a different title, excuse me. Um, but I think of titles as the first line, really, as the way in. And so incredibly um, valuable and important. Uh, sometimes when I put my poems together in a book, and so then they have this um, contact high and being together and, and forming this type of narrative from beginning end to a book, the pressure of that changes the title um, so that the poems are even more in conversation. Um, and sometimes I have the title right there in front of me, but I also, you know, I, I you know, we're, we're a generation grew up with remixes, remakes, mashups. Um, and so for that reason, I also don't think twice about stealing a title. I've stolen titles from other writers, Elliot, Frost, and I feel like it's part of the point. Um, I will say in terms of TV writing, uh, the most, the title that I find myself incredibly envious of, and I think it's high poetry, is On Becoming a God in Central Florida. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just, you know, I, I, envy, uh, I envy the hell out of that title. Um, but it also shows that, I, you know, a good title is a good title. Um, yeah. And I learn from that, I think, right? You, you just kind of like, what do I like so much about this title? Because often yeah. it's not just the title itself. Like if you've seen that show, for instance, the, the difference between the tone of the title and the, the story and the content is also great. So there, there are times when you want to have a paradoxical title. Sometimes you want to have a super on the nose title. Um, but I also learned a lot, Ben, from, um, you know, 
works of art, you know, I spend a lot of time in museums and galleries, but also music and beat tracks and everything. And sometimes you have ridiculously long titles. Sometimes yeah. you have volume two here or there. The Isley Brothers, Summer Breeze, volumes one and two. And, and that's from an album called Three Plus Three Equals Five, I think. <laughs> so just be, being really receptive to, you know, artists who come up with good titles anywhere and, and asking myself, gee, what do, what do I... What do I like about that? And then saying like, oh, I'm going to take a shot um, at that. But I will tell you, I do have one goal as a poet, and that's to never have a book where the title of the book is also the title of a poem. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I don't have a title. I don't have a, a poem, yeah. Living Weapon, or a poem called Heaven, or a poem called The Ground. However, if you read the poems, you'll find that, that you know, that 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 theme is, is, is deep into yeah. the to the poems so it keeps yeah. me it keeps me honest uh, artistically too because it's not kind of like well this poem right here is going to take care of all of that right right so it's it's cool it gives you some kind of self-imposed structure in a good way it sounds like yeah i think so i don't put notes in my books and i don't put uh and i don't have a titular poem if you will and i know that going in uh, yeah and and i don't know how much that affects the book that i make but it's certainly you know must somewhat yeah i only have a couple more questions before we wrap up with the rapid fire ones uh firstly you mentioned in your intro that you live in you split time between new york city williamstown and barcelona and i'm curious does where you are at any given moment influence or impact your creative process well absolutely i mean you know the windows you stare at being in new york and being in public transportation you know body heat barcelona um, you know, I'm always speaking in Catalan there. It's, it's never, I kind of avoid speaking English whenever I'm not in the U.S., to be <laughs> honest. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, the Mediterranean is different from the Atlantic, which is different from being next to the Green River, which I'm staring at right now from outside my window. Um, and so, yeah, you know, geography is fate and it certainly affects um, a lot of things. Like I would imagine, you know, being a, a, a screenwriter in New York ends up affecting you in ways that are different from being a screenwriter in LA, um, even if they're not ways that you can kind of like articulate right away. But I would, I would think that's yeah. the case, right? Right. And then lastly, I'm curious if there are any poets you like to turn to for inspiration and particularly any poets you might admire that may have been historically overlooked or whose work you feel is underrated. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, first, I think that poets need to kind of like learn from all poets, you learn from um, great stuff, you learn from not so great stuff, you learn from very bad stuff. Um, but, you know, Dante is a poet who I always kind of come back to and think of as a great reference for my work. Um, but, you know, there, there are so many, um, there's so many poets I admire that I do think are um, overlooked, you know, whether it's the great poet Robert Hayden or Bob Kaufman or I, who we recently lost, who's a tremendous poet. AI um, was her uh, nom de plume. Um, but yeah, you know, I would, I would, I would think that um, when I think about poets, Bob Patterson, Christopher Gilbert, um, who I admire, who I might, who might be overlooked, there's also a way in which I find um, bookstores to be so important, and independent bookstores in particular. You'd mentioned that. Um, you came across my work in a bookstore and just like, you know, being a, being a, a 
a citizen going into a bookstore, going into your, your library with not necessarily a destination book in mind, but just kind of like thumbing through the stacks and is a way in which we have these types of encounters. And, you know, I'm so grateful for those um, great and beleaguered institutions. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a poet with a lot of ambition and who believes that the, the past lives in the present and that the poets of the future, the writers of the future will decide kind of what we carry forward. Um, and so in a way I'm always writing the past and the future. Um, and yeah, I would just highly recommend Dante's work in general. I think that Americans tend to uh, be familiar with or at least know by name the Inferno because it's filled with gossip, politics and violence, which we love. Uh, but, you know, Purgatorio and Paradiso are also kind of really great books and, and, and you know, poems about humanity um, and the human condition and how we form societies really. Um, we see them less and less now because you have to have small lyric poems that can fit on pages of magazines and such like that. But I think just taking a, a stab at something that tries to say, this is how we've lived and this is where we're going is also really worth the time thank you yeah and it's it's uh i think i think another reason a lot of us know dante is because at least in my case we had to read it for ap lit but um <laughs> right but um i think i think you know i remember reading dante even in ap lit and enjoying it and poetry is just something that i think once i got to college it wasn't it wasn't as much part of the curriculum um and i think you know that's something that I'm going to, I've recently started taking upon myself to explore. And, you know, even if it's just going into a bookstore and flipping through pages and trying to now start reading them aloud and get a sense of the, the musicality that might be behind it. I think that's, that's something that's given me a lot of joy recently. And to hear about your process today has been, has been a real blessing. So thank you very much, Rowan. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to even ask you, but this glimpse was great. I think you know, maybe in the future I can ask you about trend, how you go about translation and your approach to teaching poetry. But for now, this will this will hold me over for a while. <laughs> well, you know, it's been my pleasure, Ben. And, um, you know, I, I really admire what you're doing. And, and, you know, these are complicated times. And I find nevertheless myself really grateful that we've been brought together under these circumstances. Poetry is really everywhere. I, I, I cringe at, at having said that as well. But, you know, you know, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson is a wonderful, you know, ode to poetry. And, you know, even one of the James Bond movies recently had Judy Dench reciting Longfellow. So, um, you know, poetry's not dead. It's there. It's there for us if we have our hands out um, looking for it to drop. And I'm glad that you have your hands out and your mind open, Ben. Um, you've got a wonderful mind and a wonderful podcast. And, you know, I hope that we have another meeting under different circumstances at some point in the future. Thanks for Thank you. Time. Thank you. Of course. And so just to end with these final rapid fire questions. Firstly, what's an app that you can't live without? Spotify. Yeah. Oh, you have a great playlist. We got to plug your playlist, by the way. What can you remind us the name? Uh, yes. The Rowan Tree. Please check it out. It's uh, yeah. it's a lot of hours of music for you. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Awesome. Yeah. And who would you like to play you in a film about your life? Jonathan Majors. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained one skill or ability, what would it be? To learn every language. Where's a place that you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Tokyo.
What's a song that you like to jam to right now? I Feel Good by Renee and Angela. And uh, lastly, where can people find your work and follow you on social media? Ah, uh, my website is www.rowanricardophillips.com. Uh, and you can find me at both Twitter and Instagram at, at Rowan Ricardo. Amazing. And for anybody who's curious about the podcast, you can check us out at hdydpod.com or at hdydpod. Thank you so much, Rowan. This was a real treat. Thanks, Ben. My pleasure.